postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here. I want to welcome you back to the Story Church Project. Uh, This week's podcast is huge. I'm talking about um, this really, really intense but also important question. It's a little uncomfortable, but it is so needed. Uh, at least what I mean is a conversation on this is so needed. And I'm talking about the title of our podcast, Are Your Church Evangelism Tactics Abusive? And because this is such a big topic, I am super happy that I'm not all on my own for this one. Uh, I'm actually joined by Sarah McDougall, who is the author of One Face, Shed the Mask, Own Your Values and Lead Wisely, and also the author of Myths We Believe and Predators We Trust, 37 Things You Do Not Want to Know About Abuse in Your Church, But You Really Should. So Sarah, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank and, you. And um, look, I just want to start by asking for you just to Tell us about the legend of Sarah McDougall. <laughs> well, that's a pretty, like, oh my goodness, that's a little bit bombastic. There, <laughs> Everybody loves it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's bring that back down to earth and pop that hot air balloon right there. I don't know about any legend, um, but you're really sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. Uh, Wasn't it just before we got started with this, we were talking about how gray hairs delight us looking younger than we are, weren't we? Yeah. So um, let's just say I have plenty of gray hairs and the life journeys to prove it. Um, you know, I, I'm an abuse recovery coach. I was a pastor's wife, ministerial spouse for 13 years, and um, I now work, I used to be a branding strategist and, and um, film producer, short film marketing, branding story producer, so I have actually loved following the Story Church, and um, it, it kind of speaks my language, um, cool. And, and I am also a mother of two amazing, incredible, exhausting, and beautiful and wonderful children who um, keep me on my toes every moment of the day. And um, outside of that, I am a trainer for churches on how to recognize and responsibly respond to abuse in today's culture and society. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. I, I was actually just writing about this, you know, October is domestic violence awareness month. And um, so I did an introduction post on my Facebook pages. I have thousands of followers and I was like, Hey, it's been a while since I said anything about myself instead of just posting content. So I, I, I decided to post something and um and, and kind of reintroduce myself to all the people who are following who may not have, you know, 
been around when it got started. And as I was writing that, I realized that, my goodness, um, you know, I, I went into this work kicking and screaming. I never wanted to do this kind of work. Nobody wants to be the person where you're at the dinner table and everybody's like saying, oh, what do you do? I'm a lawyer. What do you do? I'm a pastor. What do you do? I'm a nurse. I'm a teacher. I'm a music professor, whatever. Those are all really nice, shiny, interesting careers. And then people ask me, well, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm an abuse recovery coach. And they're like, well, what's that? Well, I help abuse spouses get away from the church leaders who are living double lives and harming them. Wow. And they're like, oh, oh, well, that's nice. And, and then they <laughs> either, there's, there's two responses to that. One is they either have had someone, either they've experienced something in their personal life or they know and love someone who has been profoundly wounded and very likely was not supported by their faith community in the aftermath. Yeah. And they're very interested or they scramble so fast. It's funny to change the subject and move on to the next person. Yeah. And I learn a lot about people by how they respond to that. But, you know, I, I, I've always loved helping other people tell their stories. And as a branding strategist and um, an entrepreneur, a media producer, that's what I did. The thing is, I just like focusing on the happy stories, right? The, the powerful stories, the inspirational stories, the triumphant stories, the stories of missionaries in the golden age of missions, the stories mm. of people finding healing and, and all kinds of things. I, I did not want to be the woman who talks about porn addiction and abuse and domestic violence in the clergy home yeah. and people living double lives and calling out those kinds of things um but that is where god has led me and that is where i have found my calling um and part of that comes from having lived through some of those things mm. and and experiencing it firsthand and you know when you um let's just say you you have leukemia let's say you're a child who beats leukemia and you grow up and you want to become a doctor that treats leukemia that or or a nurse that sits with families whose children are suffering from leukemia that pathos that you have from having been through it and survived right. it yeah. and understanding how they feel it gives you an edge to connect with people who are going through it now that's right well it's yeah. the same with having survived domestic violence, sexual mm -hmm. abuse, assault, any of those kind of things. When you've been through it, you see things and, and you sense things and you can, you can experience em empathy connection. Um, and you can also sense when someone is unsafe where other people may not be able to because you've experienced those things. Right. So, um, I don't know that that qualifies for legendary on any level, <laughs> but I, I can say that life is busy mm. and I am in a constant state of juggling between motherhood and ministry and um, coaching. I, I work with coaching individuals and also training churches. And one of the things that I am 
absolutely inspired by is the growing awareness and the willingness of people like you to have these 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 bitterly difficult conversations because I believe that our church cannot continue to grow as it should if we ignore the need for these conversations. So I'm really Absolutely. glad to be having this conversation. Absolutely. No, and thank you for, for being, um, for accepting this uh, invitation, Sarah. Um, and look, uh, I honestly, I think in, in many ways is that uncomfortable space that you're in that, um, that certainly makes what you're doing so meaningful. Like, you know, as a pastor, I've, I've had to interact with people throughout the years who are navigating um, recovering from abuse in church um, and in the home and things of that nature. And it's, yeah. it's a really painful thing to navigate with people, to mm -hmm. see absolutely beautiful, wonderful young people who don't want to live anymore, you know, because of these, yeah. these scenarios that they've been through. And this, yeah, it's just like, I can't even begin to remotely comprehend the, the, the agony <laughs> of being, um, and so, look, this is a really important conversation, and I'm super thankful for, for people like you who are like, yeah, let's do this, man. Let's have this conversation, because I do think we're, we're at an age now um, in, in the church's history where it's like, okay, enough's enough. Let's have this conversation, right? No, yeah. let, let's yeah. not um, well, I mean, sweep it under the, the, um, the proverbial rug. Yeah, the rug of religiosity, which is, I think, what we do. Amen. Yeah. Well, look. That's um, right. There are like a hundred directions we could go on in, in the topic of abuse. <laughs> yes. so I was just I pulling up studies on <laughs> stuff and I'm like, oh my goodness, while you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, this isn't what he wanted to talk about, but like we could totally <laughs> rabbit trail onto this and I have research well, and data on that. <laughs> well, hey, you know, the beautiful thing is that there's no reason why we can't like say, hey, let's do another one. And talk about it from a different angle. You know, that's a right? good idea. Yeah, So um, let me throw this out. Let me throw this out there. If any of your listeners want to have another another episode, um, one of the things that we can talk about is double abuse in the mm. church. What happens? Because I have fresh data okay. um, on that. Studies that I just did, and I was just recently lecturing at the End It Now Summit that was broadcast worldwide. Um, from Andrews University in Michigan. And the, the topic that I was talking about was when churches don't believe victims and then mm. they're abused a second time, that re-victimization and mm -hmm. re-traumatization. So yeah. that is a whole nother episode that we could get into. Yeah. And so y'all, if you're listening and you want us to talk about that too, tell Pastor yes. Marcus. Pastor Marcus that. at the storychurchproject.com. That's right. Or just comment, you know. On, yeah, leave a comment. On Facebook or something. Send a message. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much. Send Sarah. a carrier well, hey, pigeon. Let's um. I know you have a chiropractor appointment soon, and and and, and yeah, so I want to yeah, I want to dive know, into this conversation. Me. Um, chiropractors are addictive. <laughs> right. I love chiropractors. Oh, so good. Anyways, <clears throat> me too. So, I'm just gonna dive right into this because we have slightly okay. less time than I usually have for for interviews, um, and so. Uh, once again, everyone who is listening, um, our, our topic today is, um, are your church's evangelism tactics abusive? 
And uh, this is one particular angle on the conversation of abuse in church. Like I said, there's so many others. Um, but what happened was uh, just a few weeks ago on the Adventist Postmodern Evangelism and Outreach Facebook group, which, by the way, if you're not like a member, you should be. It's really cool. Um, Sarah <laughs> McDougall shared a video. And that video was basically titled the same exact thing this episode is titled, Are Your Church's Evangelism Tactics Abusive? And what she did in that video was she exposed some of the tactics that we have used in church, in evangelism, in, in um, training schools that um, I suppose some people think are just like the way you do evangelism, uh, but really demonstrated how the spirit behind these methods or these tactics is really quite the opposite of the character of God. Um, mm -hmm. And it was just such a mind-blowing video because there was so much that I saw there, Sarah, that I have seen in the past, and I never mm -hmm. quite knew how to put my finger on it. And, and I think you really helped in that video. It was absolutely stunning. So Are what you I sure wanted I to put do my was... finger on it? Because I think that I put a grenade on it and pulled the pin <laughs> and then stood back you and did, watched yes. it go into pieces. So <laughs> yes. That's There's a better that. way of putting it, man. Well, look, as soon as I saw the video, I was like, you know, I have to interview Sarah. We have to talk about this because I talk a lot about evangelism in the Story Church Project because I believe in our message as a church and, and I want to, you know, inspire and Amen. mobilize people to, to be involved mm -hmm. in reaching their communities, particularly like my heart is with the secular postmodern world. Um, yeah. And and so as I saw this, I realized like, yeah, this is, this is a conversation that we need to have. So I wanted to start out just by asking you this question. Um, and you know, this one question might end up taking the next, <laughs> the rest of the uh, time we have together. Shocking. But, um, we might have to just like pick this up and make it a multi-part series yes, because that's right, there's a yeah. lot to unpack here. I'm cool with that too. That's what we have to do. Absolutely. So here's my question. Um, why did you record this video? Like what was the motivation behind um, talking about evangelism tactics that are abusive? Yeah, that is a loaded question. Um, okay, so, but but I think that there, I can give you, I'm going to try to give you a concise answer. Okay. I'm going to do my best, um, and I'll probably fail, so that you've been forewarned. Um, but, okay, so uh, in the early 2000s, I, I spent a, several years working as the Associate Director of the Center for Secular and Postmodern Studies, and... Um, it was during that time that I began becoming more and more introduced to just how dogmatic most of our traditional evangelism approaches are. And it was, it was also during that time that I began to realize more and more how incompatible the majority of traditional evangelism approaches are with today's world. I mean, come on, we, we got started as a church doing evangelism in a, a family unit, agricultural, rural society. So mm -hmm. you go in in the fall after the harvest. Nobody's got anything to do in town anyway. And you set up a tent and for six weeks or 10 weeks or 15 weeks or however long you have the goodwill of the community, you come into town and, and you're there. And this is back like when, you know, a lot of the, when it got started was like pre-electricity, pre-running water. There was no such thing as entertainment. You didn't have people listening to radios. And so live music was like a huge thing. 
Mm. So you come into town and you have a dynamic, charming speaker. You have live music. And it's like, it's like the circus just came to town. But it's even <laughs> better because it's got a religious you know, aspect to it. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not a waste of time. It's worthwhile. Right. Um, and, and back then people would participate in that kind of scenario, um, because it suited the culture and the frame of the time. And it also was consistent with the structure of society. Now, mm-hmm we could rabbit trail into whether or not some of the pushy tactics used then were justified, even though they fit in with the mindset of society. Um, but I'm not going to go there right now. So okay. that's an argument that, that we could have. We could, we could like parse that out, but, but let's not go there right now. Let's just use it for the sake of illustration. Today, Fair. if you do that kind of thing, and I know there are those who are hardcore like evangelistic reaping meetings kind of thing. And, uh, and they, they love it. They insist that it still works. And for some people, there are, there are tangible results. I am not here. If that is working for you, I am not here to argue with you on method as to whether or not your results are real. So I'm just going to put that right out there. I am not here for that argument. Um, but by and large, culture today does not have people who are in a season of rest after the agricultural harvest where they're, um, they, they have free evenings and they have nothing else to do but go to that pit meeting that's in town. Mm. We live in a, in a hectic whirlwind of a constant motion world. We, we, we do not live in a, a cultural society where people have time on their hands That's right. in any healthy kind of way. So asking people to, to get involved with that kind of interaction, um, it, it, it does, well, first of all, the type of people you draw are the people who do have time on their hands. That's the mentally unstable, the elderly and retired, the unemployed um, kind of my, migrant is not a, a good word that could be politically charged. That's not where I'm going with that. Um, uh, uh, people who don't have roots, mm. the, the people who kind of wander from one church to the next church, just checking things out, not stable, steady people. Now, do all those people need Jesus? Absolutely. Of course they do. But we need more people in church than just those categories. Other categories of people need Jesus too. Yeah. And so you combine that. And I, again, I've rabbit trailed just a little bit. You combine that with the way we teach our young people to do evangelism. And this is really what, what struck the match to get me, to do that video. Um, so, so all of this other stuff, like agricultural society versus social media society, the, you know, the, the cornfield generation has turned into the iPod generation and society is just not the same anymore. And so we can't be approaching it with the same 
approaches clearly. Um, but so that, that was like background in the back of my head, but, but what really got me going was some of the, uh, things that I have been told, um, as more and more spiritual abuse is uncovered in different training organizations for our young people. And again, I'm not going to go into details about that, but as young people have talked to me, it has sparked how I went back into my training as a young person. I started call partying when I was four and I started, yeah, it's like my dad was a big booker, like a career big booker um, for a little while. Um, It wasn't really suited to his personality, which is totally fine. But you know what? One of my earliest memories is being two and a half years old and watching my dad sit for six weeks staring out the patio door and I had no idea what was wrong. I just remember one day there was a wasp or a honeybee or something stuck on the inside of the door and I'm allergic and I kept saying, daddy, daddy, and he didn't hear me. And I knew something was wrong with my daddy. It was, it wasn't until I was an adult that I found out that he had been unable to make a living in rural Arkansas as a big booker. And when he chose to transfer careers as a newly converted Adventist who had tried to go do that, even though he's like the world's biggest introvert, he had tried to go do that so far outside of his comfort zone. And when it became clear that he could not feed his family, the people who were in charge of him told him that he had left the only work that mattered and quoted him some spiritual passages and, uh, told him that he had basically apostatized and abandoned the only form of evangelism that counted. And he sunk into a deep depression, Hmm. feeling that he was trapped between abandoning his family and abandoning an obligation to God. And that's one of my earliest memories. Well, I grew up still learning to do literature evangelism, doing Bible work. I put myself through academy and five years of college doing literature evangelism and summer programs and Christmas programs and winter blitzes, you name it, I did all of it. And um, I taught soul winning Bible study groups and I sat through the getting decisions trainings with all of the famous books from all of the famous evangelists and as I have grown in understanding of domestic violence and emotional abuse and verbal abuse and psychological abuse and spiritual abuse, it has dawned on me over the years that the tactics that we condemn in a marriage, in the home, in parenting that are authoritarian and, and demeaning and controlling and taking power over others those are the same tactics we applaud in evangelism wow and it makes me want to throw up Mm. because this is not the character of god and we have an obligation to properly to the best of our ability represent the character of god to those we meet and interact with yeah And we're not doing it. In fact, we're not doing it so far that we are teaching and training our best and our brightest and our most passionate young people to 
do things that are qualified for domestic violence mm. if they were being done in the home. Yeah, that's right. And then we wonder why our pastors become abusers and become addicted to things that destroy their marriage. And we wonder why our churches have incredibly difficult issues with conflict resolution. And a big, huge part of it, I believe, is that what we win people with, we win them too. And if we win them with violent, domestic violence, and, and I need to explain domestic violence, I'll get to that. But if we win them with abusive tactics, we win them to an abusive mindset and we entitle them with our approach to spirituality. We, we give them a sense of entitlement to take power over other people. And that is antithetical to the character of God. Absolutely. Now let's back up. Yeah. When I say domestic violence, most people assume that you mean somebody getting punched, black eyes, bruises. That is one aspect of the 12 forms of domestic violence. Wow. And, and so domestic violence, abuse, domestic abuse, is not a single action. You don't have to throw someone into the wall to become an abuser. Of course, that is an abusive action. Hmm. But abuse itself is a system. It is a pattern built on an infrastructure of taking power over other people and using it to diminish their personhood and remove their voice. Mm. Now, if we define abuse like that, a systemic infrastructure where it is normal to take power over others, dominate and control them, and tell them what and how to do, while taking away their personhood and silencing their voice, all of a sudden we realize that's a lot of church. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I want to I want to get into um, some of the specific examples that you you shared in your video. But as you're talking, I I can really recognize as well. And a lot of this came up as I was watching the video. Recognize. Um, experiences that I've been through, experiences that my wife has been through as well, particularly what you're describing as taking away a person's um, personhood, Boy. right? Taking away yes, a person's you know, sort of thought agency. process. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. Their, their autonomy. Um, and I just remember, you know, like even my, my wife telling me lots of stories where, um, you know, she's growing up in church and people are sort of I suppose you can call it discipleship, although I wouldn't call it that. Um, <laughs> um, right. You know, right. people are are, 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 you know, just teaching her the way that they know. And, and, and the moment she had a question or the moment that she wanted to challenge something because it didn't make any sense, their response <laughs> was always, oh, well, you have to be careful because you're being deceived by the devil. So it's like any time she thought for herself... She was being right. deceived by the devil. And that created a, a anxiety that was so strong that um, when she was a, she was a teenager, yeah. she actually became very suicidal because, you know, she was she was being fed this really dark, controlling, coercive God yeah. um, that she had to appease and make happy. And she already felt like mm -hmm. she couldn't. And then, you know, she read, yeah. you know, like messages to young people and found a hundred other things she wasn't doing right. Um, 
and and then eventually she decided what's the point of living you know and and it, it was yeah. all based on this sort of you know perspective that you're describing which yeah mm -hmm. a lot of people just thought was normal they they, they thought they were defending the right. truth they thought they were being faithful to god's principles without realizing yeah. that they were actually tools of of abuse in in those scenarios mm -hmm. um so like i want to i want to shift gears a little bit now i don't know how much time you have sure. left um, how, how much time uh, do you we, have? We can do another 15 minutes. Okay. All right. Beautiful. So I want to shift gears a little bit. And, um, in your video, you actually, you, you went through some actual sort of examples of what some of these things look like on a practical level. So you talked about using fear to get people to choose Jesus <laughs> and also using manipulation to get decisions for Jesus. And you gave some examples right. of that. Can, can you walk us through those a bit? Absolutely. Okay, so um, let's just go with the simpler one, and then I'll come back to the fear one. Um, so, and, and let me just make myself a note. Okay, so the manipulation one, um, this one's all over the place with Bible workers and, and literature evangelists and public evangelists and all of this kind of thing. So um, let's just be real blunt. You set up Bible studies or you schedule meetings. You don't tell them who it's with. You start at a public hall, then you switch to a church later, and six weeks later they find out who's really behind it. That's manipulation, people. Mm. It's it's a bait and switch. That's 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 just straight on deception. Um, using uh, mind games and sales gimmicks and um, and, and 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 trickery to get into places where you're not supposed to be. Literature evangelism, big, huge sign right on the front of this neighborhood, no soliciting. And then you say, oh, well, we're getting around that. We're just asking for donations. Whatever. Mm -hmm. Whatever. You're teaching young people to skirt the truth and sometimes outright lie in order to do what you think they need to do or what they have been kind of programmed to do, you're telling them that dishonesty is okay if it's for evangelism's sake. Wow. And then if they get questioned by it or they have questions by it, you're telling them, you're laying the burden on them that today there might be someone in that neighborhood Today is their last day on earth. And if you don't go to their door as fast as possible and you don't run between houses and maximize your time, they might commit suicide or they might die in a car accident tomorrow and they will never have had that book in their hands. They will never know Jesus and it will be your fault. That's some pretty intense stuff. Yeah, that happens mm. on a regular basis. That is... So much false guilt, mind games, perfectionism, telling young people that the salvation of people behind closed doors is on them and then creating this total black and white kind of scenario that if somebody was mean to them at the door, then you just shake off the dust because they've given themselves over to the devil. And you know what? They made their choice and you did the best you could and you just move right on. You know what? You don't know what kind of day that person was having. You can't condemn them. 
and tell young people to just ignore, uh, not ignore, but to just disregard and just kind of basically mentally hand that person's soul off to the devil because they didn't buy your book. First of all, there's one person, not person, there's one entity that converts and convicts, and it's not human. That's right. It's called the Holy Spirit. We are instruments, absolutely. And I know I'm speaking very strongly on this, but I also want to caveat that I absolutely believe in openly and publicly and freely, without shame or bias, sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So I am not about hiding your lamp under a bushel and pretending you don't know Jesus, not telling anybody anything. But using abusive tactics to get there, I don't believe that pleases God. And mm -hmm. it certainly doesn't set our young people up for lifetime, relational, career, social, or spiritual success. Hmm. What it does is set our young people up to perpetrate abuse in their personal relationships and to receive abuse from those around them without questioning. That's what it does. We groom our young people through training them in these evangelism tactics to allow other people to take away their personal agency, whether that's in a future marriage, in a dating relationship, or to allow church leaders to dominate and abuse them and take power and control over them. This is exactly, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it even bigger. This is exactly the mindset that the reformers rebelled against and we applaud them for doing so in the time of the dark ages when they yeah. were pushing against the domination, the world domination of the Catholic church. Now, do I think all Catholics are, Part of that? Absolutely not. I have lovely Catholic friends who are wonderful, wonderful people. I'm talking about the system, the yeah. abusive power system, the infrastructure here. So we look back at that and we talk about Wycliffe and Huff and Tyndale and, and Martin Luther and all of these people who were willing to think differently and we affirm them we tell our young people be like them then they our young people start to think individually and we're like shut up sit down you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> so we hold up these these paragons of independent thinking and individual research who reintroduced the reality that god wants us not to pray like robots but to think for ourselves, that God wants us to communicate with him personally and to listen to him personally. But here's the thing. We live in fear. We live in fear that God is not big enough to convict other people of what we believe he's convicted us of. Mm. We live in insecurity that, that leads us to think that if other people don't agree with us, they must be in the wrong and we must be in the right and we have to make them agree with us or they're not okay, which would mean we're not okay. Mm. So because we don't live at peace with what we believe in our own souls, our internal reality is not aligned with our external message. And so we don't believe that God can love us if we have questions, hmm. 
So we set this, this infrastructure up and then we lock into it. And that is exactly what the papal system did until the reformers came in and blew it up. That's right. Yeah. And thought for themselves. And we run the risk of doing the same exact thing with what we believe to be our end time message. Now, do I believe all those doctrines? Absolutely. Do I believe this is the right way to go about helping other people see them? No, I do not. Mm, so getting right. fear, you could die today on your way home. This could be your last day alive. You never know what's going to happen to you. How many times have you heard a, a, an appeal either personally or from a pulpit that sounds something like that? Oh, yeah, man. So many times. So many times. I've yeah. done them myself. <laughs> okay. Well, you know yeah. what? 20 years ago, I have two. Yeah. So I'm not sitting here in judgment saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm so much better than this. Mm. I have traveled through all of that journey and gotten to this point. Yep. So I am not exempt from having participated. <laughs> I'm ashamed of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm saddened by the fact that I bought into it. But mm. I also realize I can't change that. And it's what I was taught. What I can do is change now. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think for me, one of the things I, I'm i really thankful for, at least the way that God has kind of led in, in my life, is um, that because he's kind of put this, this burden on me for reaching uh, people who we struggle to reach, so the more secular right. mind, um, yeah. I've, I've had to have tough conversations with, with secular people. And I have them all the time because I try and connect with, you know, uh, as, as much as possible with people who don't do church and don't like it and, and, and just journey with them, you know, and, and, and yeah. do life together. Um, yeah. And I think those relationships are what have caused me to rethink because as I'm talking to them and trying to figure out like what, why don't you do church? And, you know, is it, is it ideological? Is it emotional? You know, all those tough questions. Right. Um, right. I find, I find a lot of what you're discussing is, you know, like this fear, like they see right through it. Like they exactly. see it. It's just like, it's, you know, we, we <laughs> so think we're being teenagers. like super clever and they're sitting there yeah. like, I know exactly what you're doing. I know that mm -hmm. you're using marketing tactics and, you know, right. um, selling fear, which is like the, the you know, the, you know, one of the things that I learned when I did a, a marketing course some years ago is people buy fear. You know, and it's like <laughs> most of our evangelism is really rooted that way. It's like sell fear and, you know, yeah. It is. So. So people buy people. What are the things people buy into? People buy sex. Mm -hmm. People buy fear. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, joy, sales for joy, they just don't get you very far. Mm. Um, and, and, and here's the thing. Unlike 150 years ago, today's society is saturated with millions of pieces of data every day. Our sensory mm. input is through the roof. So when we're talking about things that are authentic, people want real. That's right. They're so sick of fake mm plastic, manipulative, toxic, trickery, projection, false guilt, exploitation, all of it. Yeah. They're, they're done up to yes. here with the pushy sales <laughs> tactics. And yes. when you use yes. God hand in hand with pushy sales tactics, it is the fastest way to turn off most people who most need God. Absolutely. 
Yeah, so, so you know, true. Well, look, Sarah, before before you dive into the next point there. Okay, um, okay, okay, yeah. Here's, here's what I want to do. No, like, uh, this, is, this is really profound stuff. And here's what I want to do, just because I know that our, our, our time is, is ticking because you have an appointment. Yeah. Um, in, in this video, you, you spend a, a good deal of time laying the foundation on what the problem is. And I, and I love that because I think you have to be able to identify the issue, not just in its broad yeah. themes, but in its specifics. And, and, and I love that you do that. And then you move Otherwise, on Otherwise, we're to, not talking the same language, you exactly. know, and, and yeah. 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 And, and then you move on to focusing on, hey, here is what true biblical evangelism looks like. And, and then you go yeah. into specifics there. Um, now, we're not going to have the time to lay the foundation and do what true eva biblical evangelism looks like in this episode. So what I want to do, right. like, let's just focus the rest of the time on, on continuing. Let's lay that foundation. Um, okay. And then let's get together again and talk about true biblical evangelism for another episode. <laughs> Perfect. Let's do that. Let's because do that. Think, and we'll call it a part one and part two because yeah, let's do that. they yeah. need to be linked together. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because I would hate to rush past the lane. Because I think anyone, here's the thing that, 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 that uh, here's the reasoning behind that. I think anyone in church would say, no, we shouldn't use coercion, manipulation, fear, etc. And then turn around and do it. Because they don't realize yep. what the the structures are that mm. feed into this stuff, which is why I want to I, I want you to lay that foundation well. So, um, in the right. in the time that you have left, you also talked about fear, getting fear, using fear to get people to choose yeah. Jesus. So okay, so if from that perspective, just taking that one little chunk, using fear to get people to choose Jesus doesn't work. Mm. No, it might mark in the moment. You know why? Because they want you to stop making them scared. <laughs> and that lasts about as long as the end of watching a horror movie. You were really, really scared. Maybe you couldn't sleep for a few nights. And then life goes on. That's right. It does not result in genuine, authentic change. Mm -hmm. It just gets you quick results and then drift away. And we wonder why. We have a retention problem. Well, our tactics are a big, huge place to start with addressing our retention problem. Now, I mean, ultimately, the, the, the bottom line is that Jesus doesn't need you to be scared of him to realize that he's good. Mm -hmm. Jesus doesn't need fear or false guilt, or manipulation, or mind games, or tactics to get you to be enticed to his good message and his mm. good news. That's right. Jesus and his love and his transforming power and his ability to change you from the person you were to the person you can be, he is incredible enough all on his own mm. to not need any manipulative tactics. That's right. And we forget that. We do. We yeah. forget that. And we act like we're serving some small God who needs us to beat people up a little bit to figure out that they should do what he says. Yeah. Instead of realizing that we are presenting people with the premier force of love in the universe who does not need us to coerce individuals into accepting him. Mm. Here's That's the thing. Right. God is so passionately dedicated to your free will and my free will that he will not 
violate it, even if you choose not to love him. If he did, if he operated on the coercion spectrum, he would have come up and slapped that fruit out of the hands of Eve and said, I know I said you had a choice, but really, ha! psych, you don't. I'm telling yeah. you what you are going to do. This is what's best for you. I have determined it. I am your creator. Now you do what I said. Hmm. And he didn't. That's he right. knew what it would bring, and he didn't. Lucifer in heaven, he could have wiped out Lucifer's freedom to choose. And instead, he stood back. He let it play out. He let Lucifer make his own heart-rending choice and pull one-third of the angels with him. Yeah. Why? Because he is that passionately dedicated to your free will choice. As long as we, in our evangelism tactics, are willing to encourage other people to violate free choice, we are using Lucifer's toolbox. Hmm. We go back to Joshua 24.15. What does Joshua 24.15 say? Joshua speaking to the children of Israel, and he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Was it because Jesus was going to come tomorrow or they were all going to die tonight? Was that a fear-based thing? We use it that way a lot. No. So true. Yeah. It wasn't. Do you know why? Do you know why it was? It was because Joshua understood the neuropsychology of human behavior. You see, if I don't choose Jesus today, every choice that I make leads me in one direction or another. Every choice we make is a fork in the road. That's right. And every significant moral failing started with a little choice somewhere back there that you thought didn't matter. Hmm. So when we think our choices don't matter, we create thoughts. We, in, we in, accept thoughts, which create feelings, which turn into habits, which turn into a character that is either railroad tracks that lead us toward a destination of good or chains that bind us in a life of destruction. That's right. So our thoughts and our choices create feelings, which create actions, which create habits, which create character, which create destiny. And that is why it is important to choose this day because God understood and Joshua understood how the human mind works. If I don't choose Jesus today, if I don't choose kindness today, then you know what? In a year, all those disregarding, all that disregarding of those choices along the way, I could be standing next to a huge moral cliff and not even recognize it because of all the little choices I've made that led me there. Mm. That is why we choose today. Choose today because the choices I make today gradually add up collectively to the person I will be a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. And that person in the future will either be more sensitive to the voice of Jesus and more like God's love or less based on the choices that I make today. Yeah. That's why. Mm. It's not a fear thing. It's the way your mind works thing. It's mm. a habit thing. It's, yeah. a, it's an identity thing. And mm. that, 
that is something that people in the rest of the world that are not already saturated with abusive evangelism tactics, that's something they get. Your choices make who you are. That makes sense. It's practical. It's also supported by science. It's kind of a big <laughs> that's deal. That's right, yeah. You know? So and me... it's not fear-driven. That's right, so, yeah. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was I was gonna I was gonna launch off of that because mm-hmm. you know we, we do use like I'm I'm thinking of that particular text right there right we use it sometimes in appeals, um, making yeah. people feel like you know you got to choose today because you you might get hit by a bus on the way out of here you know, um, right? Yeah, that sort of thing. You get diagnosed with cancer tomorrow and then it's too late. Yeah, so yeah, we have we have this end times message mm-hmm. that has. What's the way of putting it? Like, I love our end times message and I love prophecy. Me like, too. I'm a prophecy nerd, like the next guy. Absolutely. Um, but we, we've got this well, end times message like that's, that's, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so easy to, to sort of market it as a fears based thing, you know, the mark of the beast yep. and, you know, the, the, um, you know, Armageddon and, you know, <laughs> hail and fire, you know what I'm saying? Like, So a lot of people feel like if you say, hey, let's just let's preach God's goodness and love and 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 not this fear based message. A lot of people feel like uh, for a lot of people that translates as let's not preach prophecy at all because we've just conflated the two so much. It's difficult for us to Mm -hmm. conceive of a prophetic message that's not riddled in doom and gloom and fear. So how do you interact with that? Oh, that's a heavy question, man. Um, How much time do you have? You, you got like two, oh you got two minutes. <laughs> Not enough for that one. Uh, but, you know, just, just just to answer it, it quickly and then maybe let's like write that down to come back to it and yes. unpack that some more. So when we approach, let's, let me go back to that foundation that we we're talking about of like what we're focusing on in this section. When we focus on that fear-driven prophecy kind of thing, here's what we do. People who are guilted and shamed and strong-armed and bullied into decisions, A, they're ripe for conspiracy theories that lead them to just go crazy. And B, we tend to attract the type of people or create the type of people who shift with the wind because fear is not a lasting motivator. Mm. Fear changes. What I'm afraid yeah, of I, I remember, I remember you mentioning this in your video, like that, um, that when you've attracted someone with that tactic and, and sort of they're sort of at their local church, um, you know, and, 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 and just doing their thing, then the next guy who comes along with a stronger fear message, yes. they, they'll gravitate to that. Like forget the pastor because and forget honestly, the Sabbath school lesson. This guy with all his theories about the Illuminati, <laughs> about, like I'm going for that because, you know, yep. that's that's yep. the tantalizing stuff. <laughs> yes. And you know what? Honestly, it's almost like a trauma bond. And when we create people like that, when we create that kind of mindset, we cultivate this mindset where we, if if we aren't like latching on to the next big fear thing, then we must be lost. We must, we, we must be like out of touch with Jesus. We must be like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Hmm. Because I'm not getting on that fear bandwagon too. And it's like, it's like this Stockholm syndrome where we're just getting like running after people 
whatever the latest speaker is or person, lay person even, who has the scariest message. Yeah. And that's got nothing to do with Jesus mm. and everything to do with trauma bonding. Yeah. That's straight out of the domestic violence and abuse recovery playbook right there. Yeah, I'm, I'm always I'm always like a bit suspicious when people say to me, oh, I love this person because, you know, he just tells it like it is. And that's what we need, you know, and I'm like, okay. you know, dude, I don't know where those people are because that's what gets me haters. Yeah, <laughs> <No> yeah. <longer. laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I guess it just depends on what you're saying, you know. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're exposing you know, our brokenness and that's not comfortable. No. Oh, no. Stop it. Stop it. But, you know, people who are guilted into fear-based decisions are taught to live afraid. Mm. And Paul tells us that there is no fear in love. If yeah. we are coming closer to God and getting more scared, something is wrong with that gospel. It mm. is not the authentic gospel. If we are living in more and more fear and trying to control others out of that more and more fear, then we're missing the gospel point at its core. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's actually probably a really good place to wrap it up. Because yeah, let's wrap anything it up there, else Sarah, because I, I know you got to get over After that yeah. is like starting a whole new chapter. <laughs> yes, look, we're going to get back together. We're going to do a part two, everyone. So you're listening. You're sitting on the edge of your seat. You're like, I want more. Um, we're we're, we're going to dig into part two. I, look, I want to read this Ellen White quote from Science at a Time, March 17, 1887, because awesome. I think it's a great thing. It encapsulates everything you've just said. It's a great place mm -hmm. to close. And then we'll get back together, Sarah. We'll schedule a part two and, and make it happen. Here's the quote, guys. Um, Ellen White, Science of the Time, March 17, 1887. The shortness of time is frequently urged as an incentive for seeking righteousness and making Christ our friend. This mm -hmm. should not, I want to emphasize that, this should not be the great motive with us for its savers of selfishness. Is it necessary? I love this. This is like, huh? all right, it's Ellen White speaking, not me. All right, so if you want to get angry, write her a letter. <laughs> is it necessary that the terrors of the day of God should be held before us that we may be compelled to write action through fear? Mm. It ought mm. not be so. Jesus is attractive. He is full of love, mercy, and compassion. He proposes to be our friend. Like that just encapsulates Love everything it. you just said, Sarah. Love like, it. wow. Love it. <laughs> yes. Let's wrap it up there. Um, guys, up there. if you've been listening to this and this is the first time that um, you've interacted with Sarah, I want to remind you she's got some books out. Um, One Face, Shed the Mask on Your Values and Lead Wisely, and Myths We Believe mm -hmm. and Predators We Trust 37 Things You Do Not Want to Know About Abuse in Church. But you really should. And she's also got a new one coming out soon. Safe churches responding to abuse in a safe community. Uh, we're going to talk about these a little bit more um, in the upcoming episode. But I just wanted to throw it out there so you guys can jump on Amazon and do some, uh, some hunting for Sarah's books. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm going to let you go because I know you got places to be. Um, and we'll schedule a part two. So for those of you listening, watch this space. And God bless you as you seek to redesign Adventism permission. Take care.